Hi, welcome to season one of Actors on Process, a new podcast with me, your host, James Crichton. I've been working on this project since January of 2019, so I figured that it was finally time to throw the spaghetti to see what sticks. I'd been nervous about releasing it because it wasn't perfect yet, but I've come to the conclusion that the content is too exciting not to share, and whoever said that Scrappy couldn't be beautiful? So, in this podcast, you'll hear about process from several of my favorite actors who will specifically break down their processes from their amateur experience up to their most recent jobs, how they pounded the pavement, got an agent, prepare for auditions, their rehearsal room and performance techniques, etc., etc., etc. I learned something new from every one that I spoke to, and I'm incredibly grateful to each actor that agreed to sit down with me. I got the idea for this podcast from a book, Actors at Work, by Rosemary Tischler and Barry J. Kaplan. Originally published in 2007, their book is a collection of interviews that, similarly, explores process within the profession. They sat down with Billy Crudup, Marion Seldes, Ruben Santiago Hudson, Meryl Streep, and many more. It is a mesmerizing read from start to finish, and if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. So, whether you're an actor, a fan, a teacher, or maybe a lawyer who used to dream of the Great White Way, I hope you enjoy this podcast and you too learn something new. So, a little bit about it. Like the Hadestown original Barway cast recording, I have dropped the first three episodes as the initial drop, and then every Monday throughout the summer, I'll release another episode of the first season. This was my first time doing anything like this, so please excuse any background noise, poor quality, any excessive use of the word like. Otherwise, I think you'll enjoy it. Anyway, let's get on with the show. Perhaps you've seen my guest today most recently as Ryan's mother on the Netflix show Special. Or you might know her as Susan Bunch from Friends. But if you're like me, perhaps you know her best from her stage performances in the Assembled Parties, Admissions, Stage Kiss, The Price, Fiddler on the Roof, etc., etc. The list goes on. She is a creature of the stage. And so I can think of no other person better suited to be this podcast's first guest. And so, drumroll please, without any further ado, I introduce my first guest, Jessica Hecht. So here I am with Jessica Hecht, my first guest for this new podcast project of mine. I'm honored. And I'm so happy to be here with you. Uh, should we tell everybody where we are? We're in my bathroom. <laughs> we are in my bathroom. I'm like, oh God, yeah. a little dirty. <laughs> no, it's beautiful and it's perfect. It's like we're in a recording studio, we are. which we're we love. We are in my little white bathroom yeah. in my house on Riverside Drive. <laughs> and Very New York. Off we go. Mm-hmm. So, um... You are quoted in an early interview as saying that you develop your real style in your 30s, 
and you've acknowledged that you were figuring it all out in your 20s, and that's basically the reason for this entire podcast, um, actors breaking down and sort of contemplating process. Mm. So, uh, yeah, and we and that's so interesting. I, I don't remember saying that, but that is exact. That is quite true. Recently, I looked, I grabbed a script to do a reading that I hadn't really um, probably picked up in 30 years. And when I did that reading, I was about 30. So that was 23 years ago. And I, and I was shocked by the notes I wrote for myself. And I thought, wow, I would have probably written somewhat similar notes now, mm. just in terms of um, my impulse for helping myself when I'm looking at a piece of text. So maybe it was before my 30s that I actually uh, like know, late started. 20s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but certainly I didn't I didn't have anything that I could really rely on until my 30s. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. We'll get more into that sure. later, but for now, would you please paint me a picture of who Jessica was as a kid? Oh, I was like a tomboy. I was kind of a tomboy, but not that talented an athlete. So I was like a ne'er-do-well tomboy. Oh. I was a little bit, um, yeah, I, I was just a little bit all over the place. I was kind of both physically and psychologically spastic, I guess I would say. Really? <laughs> but I was really into sports and then really into modern dance. Um, so that, that I probably evolved some kind of grace in, in time. And I was used to be interested in a lot of... And I was really interested in um, sports when I was young. And then I was interested in Judaism or in religion, just mm. religion. I, I was thinking for a bit of maybe being a cantor or a rabbi. And, mm. and then I was interested in theater. Like as a junior in high school, I was all over the place in my... And, Maybe with a bit of a bad crowd, although now that I have my own teenagers, I realize that she was no not that bad at all. You? <laughs> yeah. A little bit like just kind of, um, I grew up in a small town in Connecticut, and they were they were kind of like the, the wild um, gr- greasers. They, so every era, deck, you know, kind of reflects back on, an, on a past era. Mm. So they were maybe reflective of 50s kind of Happy Days characters who drove around in you know, um, pickup trucks and yeah. motorcycles wow. with no real agenda. And, um, and then I fell into that crowd and my mother, uh, who was a therapist, thought I should do, go back to maybe trying something creative. And I, on a whim, applied for this program at Wesleyan University called the, oh, so it's such a dorky name, but the Center for Creative Youth. And I got in for acting. So I went off for a summer program and was fell in love with it. And that was right before my senior year, really. So it wasn't like I was a kid that... So it was sort of like a summer theater thing. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. And really a great one. Like, a great one. And, in fact, many people who went on to be actors were there, or went on to be in the business, were there. They just had to live in Connecticut. And that was transformative. I also became a vegetarian and oh. did a lot of things that I still am. Um, um, yeah, but I, I, I loved the theater. And, and then I went my first year to college at Connecticut College, which was very, had a nice dance program. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, and within a year, um, I met this incredible professor, Morris Karnofsky, who was a revelation to me and turned me on to the group theater and, and made me realize I wanted to study acting in a serious way. And I was extremely depressed at Connecticut College for probably just... I just was probably a teenager and and trapped in this 
quite a small place with an agenda. You know, suddenly I had an agenda. So my parents let me audition to transfer to NYU, which I did. And that was the start That's of really start. studying it. Yeah. I kind of can't yeah. believe how similar we've had experiences. Oh, really? In oh. that summer theater programs sort of changed my mm. life. And wow. I work there whenever I'm fortunate to still be able to go work at camp. I do it. And oh, I teach theater. Yeah. And I direct and I work with kids. But um, I, too, spent a freshman year somewhere that I... Devastated. Devastated yeah, by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for, like, no... I was studying at Marymount Manhattan, and I was oh, studying yeah. musical theater, but yeah. for some reason I couldn't... I wasn't interested in it, and mm -hmm. I felt that there was so much I needed to know about Shakespeare or... Play. I didn't know anything about plays. I yeah. thought that musicals were the only way to go. And yeah. then when I transferred, my life sort of changed. Yeah, yeah. It is about clicking into something you think you could be good at, or not even that clicking into something that speaks to you. So, you know, you always say, like, when does, when does somebody find their calling? It's when that thing speaks to you at night or when you're, you know, sort of when you're just existing in your life. And the idea, the... I, the idea behind acting of being someone else or studying language starts to speak to you mm -hmm. at all moments. That's, I think, when you realize you found your calling. And would you say that happened freshman year of college or the end of high school? In college, yeah, the freshman year of college, when I got to Connecticut College and met Morris um, and started auditioning and getting these really good parts at there. At school? I, yeah, I was like, wow, I got like you know, Hannah in the Night of the Iguana. I mean, mind you, these are college productions, right, but right. I was um, getting parts that I just never thought, uh, I, I just didn't even understand language right. and, and understand plays and the scope of, oh, I could play these parts. And um, and then I used to go at night to, they had this wonderful archival library collection and I would go and look up Michael Chekhov books mm -hmm. and things that, re read reviews of, of plays that Morris had done and that group theater had done. And I would spend my time doing this, not, you know, provoked by any assignment. And I was mm. like, oh, totally. That's, <clears throat> That's when you caught the bug. Yeah, isn't that exciting? You know, and you'd go, and then when I got to NYU, I just, it, I, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't turn it off, you know. And I would, it's so exciting when you get to the point when you're taking a run and you're thinking, oh, I want to go read that play. Mm -hmm. Not, it's not about, it, it, you know, it's not about having, I hate when people say, of someone who's successful. Well, they're extremely ambitious, and that's why they're that. Yes, there is something about ambition that's interesting to us all, but there's also something about being an actor and just being deeply interested in the art form. And uh, I, I am ambitious, but I'm really interested in the, probably more ambitious to know the art form than I am to be famous or something. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that speaks to me on such a big level. Big yeah, level. Sure. Good, and I think good. it just uh, it bears uh, reiterating just that we have that wild connection sort of yeah. with Morris Karnofsky. <laughs> but when I was taking your class last year at yeah. HB Studios, yes, when yeah. I sort of stumbled magically into that basement, mm -hmm. um, you you spoke about a, a book or something that Morris had, had written. And my ear was sort of triggered. And I went home and I, I looked up the book. And I saw that it had been co-written or co-authored with my professor yes. from Hofstra University, Peter Sander. I can't that. And I had sent him this email. I'm working with this actress, Jessica Hecht. I'm so thrilled. And, and, and she brought up Morris Karnofsky. And, and uh, he had retired from Hofstra. And he sort of, uh, I hadn't heard from him in a while. And then uh, he didn't respond to that email. And then about a month or so later, 
the book. Mm. I just appeared in my mailbox <gasps> with a note from Peter. <laughs> And I, I just couldn't believe it. Yeah. So I, yeah. I still, you know, I look through the book from time to time. I don't think I've fully digested it still to this day, but that's one of the things on the to-do list. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, you know, it's very interesting. I'll say one more thing about that time in my life, which I, which I have trouble exercising for myself, but, but um, that's, that's just, I guess, who I am. But I remember wanting so badly to please Morris at the end of the class when I knew that he had told me to go to study with Stella Adler. And I and I had found that I, I got into NYU and that I had been assigned to her studio. So we were at the very end of our time there. And um, and I was was doing, and he was excited for me, and he'd been so supportive. And we were doing a scene from Midsummer Night's Dream. And I, I was so ambitious, well, so hopeful of doing some kind of big ta-da as my, as my send-off, that I overdid it, and I over this, I was playing Titania, and I just, I just over-embellished the whole thing. And previously, everything I had done, I think I had sort of stayed within some parameters that, that I, I didn't know I had set up. So I did this, and he said, ah, so this is the problem. When you are good, you are very, very good. And when you are bad, <laughs> you are awful. And I was like, oh my God. And he said, because there's, there's the world that, that you can hear from just the language. And you needn't go beyond, you needn't go beyond what Shakespeare gives you. Mm. And you're trying to embellish that. And I'm sure I was like, did some sort of baroque, you know, which... Which in reality, that's a, you know a million Shakespeare productions you see where it's mm-hmm. like a, a hat on a hat, as they say. <laughs> but um, but I can, and then so every time, even now sometimes I think every time, and I, like overdoing it isn't really like a bit. I, I think I I took that to heart and I try to stay <laughs> on, a, on a smaller side, but but um, but. Whenever something doesn't go right, I hear him saying, mm. <laughs> "When you're good, yeah, but when you're bad." I think that's that's awful. everyone, though. But I, as I get older, I think anybody can be in something. Yes, you know, it just has a sinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, like Stella, he would tell you exactly what it was. There was no sort of softness to mm. his, um, to to his direction. Yeah, and that's all those people. I think now acting teachers, and I know I do it as well uh, they tend to make sure you leave feeling supported because we're also um, invested in feeling mm. confident you know confidence confidence which is which is true confidence is really our biggest stumbling block as actors and I definitely grapple with a lack of confidence at times a terrible you know sense of um, uh, being off you know yeah. um, and so that's when I teach. I, I don't want anyone to walk out feeling off. Or if they do feel off, I want them to know that everybody goes through that. Mm-hmm. But those teachers that I studied didn't care at all if you felt good when you walked out the door at all. And it's interesting because um, I had read that you, you spoke about, um, he said to you to study with Stella Adler, not Lee Strasberg. Yes, 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 yeah. And I had watched this documentary the other day about the group theater. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you know which one I'm talking about. It was, I think, a PBS, a PBS special oh, yeah, or something, yeah, and, yeah. and it really, I mean, in-depth, 
talked to all the people who were involved. I think every one of the original founders is interviewed and a lot of people who were sort of the disciples yeah. of yeah. the group theater. And um, I was so interested to learn about sort of like the rebellion that occurred against oh, Lee Strasberg yeah. because of Stella's uh, interactions with Stanislavski himself yeah. when she went abroad. And um, so I'm wondering, um, she did not appear warm at all in any of the interviews yeah. or coachings that I've watched with her on YouTube. In fact, she's very severe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering how did you turn, because I'm very sensitive. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know how I would respond with that sort of feedback. And I'm wondering yeah. uh, if you ever received that kind of feedback. Well, not from her, but from her disciples. So oh. when, when I was there, it was sort of the end of her career or yeah, of her, of her teaching time. Well, then she went to L.A. Um, to teach a little bit there and open her school there. Uh, in fact, Mark Ruffalo, who's, who's a friend, recorded a lot of her classes there. That's right. He's in one of those clips. Yeah, yeah. And she was quite mean she to was him. Very, but he was very much like, I need to go away and learn the style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he and in the end, she said he would be quite successful. Which right. Of course, he is. He is. But, um, but she was quite mean to him. And, and her, her, her disciples, well, her, this, there was a woman, Alice, I don't think that sadly there was the AIDS era, so a few of them had were sick when I had them as teachers, but um, but first of all, they they would they would rip you up, rip you to shreds as you were working if you didn't understand the nature of it was about respect. So mm. so your props or the text, if you came in and sort of just tried to do your thing, they would say, oh, "Did your mother tell you you were pretty? Is that why you're here?" And that would be the start. Of, that would be the start of the criticism. Yeah. 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 I think he was being ripped apart. He he didn't dress appropriately. Right, right, right. And it was all about that. Right. Do you, you touch that? I told you that this is an exercise in which you are there. There's there's an it's an emergency. There you have you can take nothing but four items from your house, and get your kids and leave. And you walk around and pick up these random things without any understanding of, uh, you know, um, imbuing a, a prop with value. What was that? It was an exercise in which you had to make something um, simple, something of tremendous value. And you would walk, you walk around this house, and they would, and as she's, this woman Alice is telling you how shitty you, you did in the exercise, She's literally flicking her cigarettes, her cigarette right. ashes on your coat, on your... Just to show you what it looks like, how if you don't have any value for things, why isn't it garbage? You know, oh, let me pick it up. And it was so... And you would just stand there. <laughs> Did you find that it was... Was it useful? It was very useful. It was very useful. Because, you know what? There's a word... There's a reason that book is entitled Respect for Acting. Mm. And there's... There was a reason that you taught acting from a place of it's an art form, and if you if you were a dancer and you were you would learn the ballet, right. you would learn everything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Wow. So there was tremendous. I mean, you could learn it many different ways, though. You don't have to learn it through humiliation, but that was it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you recall a class that scared you the most? Uh, uh, like one experience in the class, or I well something maybe that scared you, or like for me, like when I was a, a sophomore, I remember there was a movement class that I was incredibly resistant towards. Oh. I fought against, and then there was sort of like this this breakthrough. I understood what was going on, but it scared me, I think, because of my own fears. Yeah. yeah. 
I loved studying acting so much that um, I don't, I would get scared almost every different mm. class, but then I would kind of, the things that were, were most fearful of, of course, is usually what you have the biggest breakthroughs in. Mm. I do recall um, being uh, very anxious in the David Mamet program that I did for, for one semester. I left Adler and I went to, it was called PAW, then Practical Aesthetics, Aesthetics Workshop. And there was a, to be extremely honest, there was like a coolness to that class and that methodology, or I perceived that there was kind of a coolness to it, like, a, you know, and they would ask you what verb, what action verb you had attached to whatever work you were doing, and I, and I would panic, because it was an intellectual exercise, mm. and I had no idea what they were doing, and that, and, and everybody around me sort of seemed so hip, and mm. so... And, and I hated that. It didn't seem like acting at all to me. There was, no, there was no vulnerability in it, which really, that technique, to me, I didn't understand the vulnerability sure. in it. Right. So and that was something you just had to experience through school. It was like a part of your training. They, you could switch, you could transfer and switch to another studio to try okay. it. And, and he was at the start of his um, you know, profound sure. success. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Wow, I mean, NYU was yeah. happening. Yeah, it was a great was a lot time. going on. My class was, my people in my class were amazing. Yeah, amazing. I had Maura Tierney, Adam Sandler, Phil Hoffman, just like two years younger. Wow. Um, it's just a great time there. It was wow. a tremendous time. Richie Jackson. It was a great time there. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And so you, you graduated from school, mm -hmm. and then talk me through sort of like the building blocks of like Jessica finds an agent, Jessica goes to auditions. What oh, was that process? Oh, well, we had. Um, we, we had like a showcase, mm. which was very valuable. We, we put it together ourselves. We, we did, the NYU at that point didn't offer these showcases that now we, everybody kind of did. And we put it together and then I, an agent came, this guy, Stephen Hirsch came, this wonderful agent who's a very successful agent now. And, 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 and uh, he asked me to sign with him. He was at a tiny literary agent mm. agency. Now it's laughable because these students now say to me, this guy wants to sign me in such a tiniest place. I'm like, yeah, the person that signed me at the tiniest place is now like one of the, just the head of paradigms. Mm. I never know. But he was super, and, and, and he helped me to get some work. And then um, I went and I, I was very lucky. I got the national tour of the Heidi Chronicles. First, I got a job. Um, I got my equity card by doing Julie Tamor's production of um, Midsummer Night's Dream for the mm. for a new audience. Um, and then, and then I got the Heidi Chronicles through Daniel Sway, who had been like a somebody who came in to talk a little bit at playwrights, and, wow. and when I was doing some a semester there, and and he was amazing. He called me in, and I and I was the understudy for all the female roles of Heidi Chronicles, which wow. was many many parts except for Heidi. And then I went on the road and did that, and then I went to a regional theater, and and I had this agent that I was like, wow, and he's now moving to Paradigm and. And I felt very excited, and I came back to New York, and I went through what was to be like the biggest crisis of confidence that I'd had in a very long time. And I started auditioning with a like no energy because I was so paralyzed that I would speak like I was fine, and uh, and I mm. just didn't. I just was. I was unable to conquer this. Um, feeling that it was all a fluke, that I had actually made all this money and gone out on the road and been working almost for two years right out of school, and it was a fluke. 
and and I had a meeting with them in which they um, uh, took me for a very nice lunch, my agent and and the head of the agency. And as I was shoveling pasta in my mouth, they proceeded to fire me, let me go. No. Yeah, it was terrible. I just kept shoving my pasta in my mouth, and I, I couldn't. I couldn't identify exactly what they were saying was wrong, other than they felt that I just had no marketability. I did not know how to put myself together, and that and that it seemed clear, in a way, that it had been a fluke, that I didn't have a way to get to the next place, and um, so, and Stephen Hirsch, to his great credit, he's a wonderful person, has repeatedly, throughout my career, been so kind to me. And said, like, oh, and if you ever need anything, and it's just been, because he was a young agent, and it was not him calling the shots. Right. Um, so then it was devastating. But I luckily I had a boyfriend in Los Angeles and went out to L.A. to be with him. I, I had made this relationship with him on the road doing Heidi, and so I went to L.A. to be with him. And he was very mo he was very motivated to like send your picture out by yourself. Just, mm. just do it by yourself. Yeah. And I did that, and I somehow stumbled into an audition for. Friends, because the casting director, I came from a small town in Connecticut, but oddly enough, like the only other person in entertainment from that town happened to be the assistant casting director on Friends, and they were looking for a scene. So, <laughs> for that part. Do you yeah. find that that sort of reinvigorated your spirit and it sort of propelled you into a new era of who Jessica is? Well, yeah, because I kept doing theater all along. I felt, I kept feeling like even though they said you weren't commercially marketable, I knew that I had some understanding of theater, mm. and I love that so much. And then the reason I got friends was actually because um, they were looking for somebody who was kind of like a natural-looking person with a quirky sense of humor, I guess, very mm. dry, who never kind of, who just told it like it was. And my lack of like a look which was actually a look, which was just like a, right. not a made up, you know, not like a glamorous right. look. And my kind of quietness, like that was just kind of cut and dried, um, was exactly what they were looking for that part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. And so then you thought, oh, one man's, you know, whatever they say. Mm -hmm. What is that phrase? One man's, I don't know. Oh, I think I know what you mean. And so, yeah. You know, it's like one man's, it's not one man's feast, is another. No, <laughs> yeah, but like, what tra like, like uh, trash what? treasure, right? Or yeah, something exactly. like that. Let's say trash. Let's say trash, trash treasure, but you are <laughs> obviously not trash. <laughs> um, person. Oh my god! I always laugh. I once had a, and I said I wouldn't go in for it because it was so offensive. I once had an audition for Darren Star, who I just think, of, who just outrageously had a, a character description of some woman in his uh, pilot of his, in which she said. Back in the shuttle, <laughs> she might have been something to look at, no. but by New York standards, <laughs> like she's just Jewish. No, <laughs> I'm like, horrible. I was like, yeah, I just. I'm gonna pass. Yeah, I'm gonna pass because she's just so offensive. Oh my Back gosh! In the whenever my husband wants to do. <laughs> That's that's how he got to you. So do you? What do you personally consider your big break? Is it Midsummer? Oh no, I think it's the last night of Valium. Mm. People would say Friends probably, but I think in New York, my big break was last night of Valium. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Now there's sort of like so many interviews that cover the project from like your early career mm -hmm. that I have 
read and loved oh. and listened to you talk about. So I wanted today specifically to talk about like the last decade or so. Okay. Um, and so let's get specific about that okay. really fast. But um, each summer you return to Williamstown Theater Festival, and as someone who has dreamed of spending time there. Oh. Can you please describe the energy surrounding that campus? What is it like over there? Well, I think, well, first of all, I, when I was in college and, well, yeah, college and shortly thereafter, I actually auditioned for Nikos and did not even get an apprenticeship or even a callback, so it's laughable that I've now had this tremendous experience in history yeah. there. It is, it is very challenging. You always go through a moment where you think this will not happen, this will not come to pass, I will not. You in the role, you mean? Yes, because you have a, like a slightly shorter rehearsal period, mm. and it's always very. You just have like three or four fewer days, and you're just not cooked. Mm. But you always get on stage, and this energy between you and the audience, and this desire to tell some story, even if it's not fully cooked, is so exciting to me. And I love that environment. Now I I live there part time. We have a house there, and I mm. know that community, and I deeply appreciate. Theater and art is a very creative environment, but I love, I just love that I would be part of a company. And even though it's not truly a company, I love that I step, like, that I think, I have been on this stage. Right. I've, I've done a dozen shows mm -hmm. on this stage yeah. and looked at these people for this whole period of my life, and it has given me such, a, such faith in the theater. And when you're there, you're not distracted, you're just mm -hmm. focused. On that. Hopefully and you have like no cell phone service or something. We have limited cell phone good. service. You're just but, but you're focused on that, but also your kids are there. For me, my kids are there mm -hmm. in that environment and I know these and it's not a glamorous about it's like very just and I just love it. And and the taste of historically of the artistic directors has been superb. Yes. Yeah. It's I'm so happy to hear you say that because I know that you said growing up, uh, you you found that being part of like a repertory company that sort of that's the goal. My goal. That is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, yeah, and I love, I love that. Uh, that's the closest I'll come. Mm. That makes me I mean, really happy. It's a great way to be. Yeah. <laughs> um, pretty, pretty recently, uh, I saw you in admissions. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to ask that uh, Josh Harmon feels that admissions is a play about characters in a constant state of redefining themselves. Mm -hmm. How do you think that Sherry Rosen Mason evolved throughout the course of the play? Oh, you know, I don't know that she evolves to a, like a whole new identity, but I do think she evolves to this place where she, where she questions her ideology, an ideology she didn't even know she really had, mm. but she questions herself, and, the, and, and that's huge. She's not somebody who has tremendous self-doubt or or even actually tremendous introspection at the beginning and then and then she kind of questions it and questions whether she's as a parent and as a person moreover really as a person because I don't think she I don't think she profoundly questions her parenting but she questions who she is in the world mm -hmm. yeah and whether she's prejudiced whether right. she's whether she's sort of wise all these things she you know she counts herself at the beginning as liberal-minded and deeply thoughtful and big advocate mm. for all of these altruistic things. And then at the end, she's like, I, I don't know. I don't know. Which is huge, which is, would be terrible, which is what we're at at this moment in time. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, when you are in the depths of rehearsal, particularly with the new play, um, 
what might an evening at home look like as you prepare for the next day? I like to, oh, that's a good question. Uh, well, I like to, uh, my kids are almost launched, but when I was with my kids, I, I would um, make dinner and, um, you know, kind of do the parental stuff that and have dinner with them and sort of put my attention on something completely different and then just work on my script, kind of try to work on my lines and just look at um, psychologically what we had figured out that day. Mm. And when when you really have little kids, um, and I'm a big advocate for people having children, when you really have little kids, you can't do that in that way. Um, and now that I'm getting back to a place where I have more, a little more time for myself, I love being able to look over things and yeah. feel like I have some... I mean, just sort of going home and not looking at it is Tough. really hard. Yeah, I like to keep my hand on the... Yeah. And so it's like a, it's a bit of reviewing, but it's also looking forward to maybe what you're going to work on tomorrow. Or yes, and what psychological pieces I've maybe chipped away at, or what... You know, my whole thing is how you understand the language to be more um, more human as you go on. You know, the whole purpose, purpose of figuring out a play, whether it's newer or, or not, is to make connections with the text that allow people to see themselves in it. So you're chipping away at it, so you have as many minute, moments as possible within your performance that one can see authentic human behavior. Well, why else do a play unless we're doing a play about humans. Mm -hmm. So I keep trying to look at little little modules of text where I'm like, oh, oh my God, that's what that is. That's when, you know that moment when you're breaking up with your boyfriend and you're like, is this, is, is this landing on him? Does he understand that I'm breaking yeah. up with him? That's that moment. Or you know that moment when you just, you just want to tell your kid, you know, whatever, you know. Yeah. It's looking for the the why or the there's yeah. something behind there's something behind every line. Yeah, or or, or just like interact or or there's something human behind. Then mm. is that the moment where where you've cut in front of the woman at the at the in the supermarket and you don't realize she was standing there and now she's pissed? Oh, that's that moment. Mm. That's why she's saying she's sorry. There, yeah, like whatever. It recognizing is. behavior. Or... Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, recognizing behavior and recognizing, yes, emotional uh, substance. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I have to talk about Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, yeah. Which I think we've talked about, but you must know it's my favorite musical in, in the world. <laughs> so when you were announced to play Golda, I was just riveted. But um, I know you've described it mm -hmm. in an interview quite mm -hmm. at length. Mm -hmm. But I was wondering if you could just talk about how that casting process came to be. Yeah, it was really intense. So it took many months. And um, I also was living in a building with Jeffrey Richards, the producer, just... Oh. Um, Right there, so it's complicated, and I was like, "Oh my god!" But um, but but they called me in. I, I think they probably thought, "A, I was a good candidate for it psychologically." But I also think maybe some interview I'd done, I talked about being in my choir at my synagogue, and, mm. and they said they understood that I wasn't um, a trained singer in any way. And um, needless to say, I practiced. I, I didn't even understand how to audition. Right. Like you would be singing with somebody who... Yeah, I didn't even understand the concept. You sort of received the packet. Right. With the music and the, the, music. And the text. So, and, then it, and then it was like, you're going to go in in a, in a week, or not even a week, maybe a few days. And then and I was like, okay, I'm going to work on this. And how should I work on it? And I said to the ancient, well, I guess you can just listen to the music. The cast recording. Right. On the, yeah. 
And then, so I listened and I listened, and and then. Do you remember what you had to sing? Yeah, I had to sing a little bit from um, Sunrise Sunset, and I had to sing a little bit, maybe, and from definitely from Do You Love Me. Right. And um, I think that was. No Sabbath. Prayer. And a little Sabbath prayer, I think. So, so I listened to the recording, and I'm looking at the music, and then like a day before, I think. And I feel pretty good about listening and just singing out because on the recording she's not a great singer and I know, and I feel really anxious about it. And so someone says you should just have someone warm up your voice mm -hmm. before going in. That that's the best bet because I do my own vocal warm ups. They're like yeah, I, and I'm always true to that. If all else fails, if you do a vocal warm up, that you you at least will speak. Right. Somebody will sound hear you. will come out. Yeah, and it'll probably be more emotional than had you not done this. So. Whatever I'm doing, if, I, if there's a chance of being nervous, I do a serious vocal woman. So that's great. Um, so then that morning, um, my friend Todd Almond, one of the greatest composers and singers, he can't do it, but he sends me to his friend, David Davin. And I go, do you know David Davin? Yes. Anybody who's studying oh, singing, I recommend, oh, but also his methodology. I, I recommend David Davin. To anybody who listens to this podcast, he is a superb teacher, accompanist, musician. He's beautiful. Uh, and so the I, kindest soul. The Sorry, kindest, <laughs> a beautiful individual. So I go. He's like, oh, wait, great. We warmed up. This is, and he, as Bart was later to say to me, he said, better than I thought it would be. <laughs> so we warmed up. So you do have this range. It's great. It's great. You could be great in this. You could be <laughs> at this moment. We're just, I'm just going to inform you of the fact that what you have practiced is not at all in the key of the music. That oh, they this was a different key on the original. Yeah, she's like four keys lower. So they're playing something. So he's like, let's just play what's written. So we're, we're like scrambling. I have to go in and have our... So I go in, warmed up. And I do start to sing, but then the note goes should go a little bit up. And in my lack of um, experience, I have stopped breathing, and I um, and I can't hit the note. It's like a dog trying to get it. Um, and I said, but I, I said, you know, I I want to try that again. I want to just try that section again. And Bart, in a very nice way, said, already it's much better than I thought it would be. And I said, well, let's just try that. And I played around. The accompanist was very kind. And he, he said, you know, you could practice and figure that out. And he said, it's like golf. And I know. <laughs> you came close. But in a little while, you don't like learn to play golf overnight. And I was like, golf? That takes years. Years. <laughs> Why are you using the golf analogy? So anyway, so. Um, and then in the preceding months, they wow. sent me to like this world-class vocal coach Liz Kaplan and and each audition until the one with Danny and then what happened with Danny was that so each time I went in three times the third time I met with him and by that time they let me do a little bit of the acting first which was a huge relief I always love that when really? I was doing musicals they're yeah. like let's sing first and yeah. often I would love to speak yeah. and then go into a song. Exactly, exactly. Singing first, for some reason, scares the daylights of out of course, me. Of course, of course it does, yeah, of course, of course. So, um, yeah, so that was my experience right, with Danny, but also what my experience with him was, which was kind of great, which was that he was so much fun to act with. Of course. When I started to sing, I, I thought, I oh, away. oh, the nervous went away, because you're 
actress was listening to someone. It's mm -hmm. like a speech. It's yeah. like it's like doing a scene without anyone there, and then doing a scene yeah. with a real beautiful, superb actor. You're like, oh my god! Right. So that was a whole a whole to do to do, and I and I was able during those auditions. It's rare at my age to be able to stop and say, I'm. I'm nervous and I want to go back and show you that I can do it. But because I hadn't done those auditions before, right. I was able to, a couple of times during the sort of meet of the process, say, I'm, I'm sorry, I could do so much better. I would this. like to try this again. Yeah. And they There's would, power in that right. as well. Yes. As I'm saying, I do that often, actually, if I don't feel I've started enough. Mm -hmm. right. Sometimes I can click into the right thing and sometimes I, you know, yeah. sadly just know I'm off and just have to ex exist in that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, with the uh, with Fiddler on the Roof, I mean, it feels sort of as important as as an American theatrical work as some of the great American plays. Mm -hmm. Is that sort of what interested you in wanting to do the project yes. as well? Yeah, and unfortunately, in some ways, I thought I didn't understand that there wasn't enough text mm. to consider it just a great American play. But sure, it is like the King Lear of musicals, certainly. And I I felt I. Uh, I, I felt I, I really understood emotionally why I wanted to do it as a person just because it's part of my history. But mm. but I, I never felt I, and I've said this in so many interviews, I never felt I truly succeeded in it. I think it's because the, the scope of the play and then the size of the theater and all of that, I just never felt I, I really filled it. But it's that's a humongous fun. house. It's a big house. And, and in the story, I think I wanted to tell it in a more... In a smaller, more personal way, um, because I have all these connections to that story and to Yiddish and all this. But it's ultimately it's a huge, magnificent commercial production of a musical. And sure. It's never, you can't change that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, have you seen the Yiddish production? I did, and I loved it. Yeah. I found it so moving. Yeah. I love. I think that's what interested me in Fiddler on the Roof was the authenticity that that it could. Accomplish, and I, and I do think in our production the dance went a, a long way to accomplishing something more tribal and beautiful. Fun. Yeah, but I loved it. Yeah. yeah. Would there ever be another musical for Jessica Heck? I would love to do another. You would musical. love, love, love. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I'm trying to develop this musical piece, um, which would uh, uh, sort of accomplish me maybe having songs built that I could that I could be more successful in mm. because I actually quite love. Singing and I, and I think in the right with the right kind of music, I think it would be a okay. great fit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Great news. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just want to segue to the extraordinary play that Richard Greenberg wrote, The Assembled Parties, yeah. which was written with you in mind. Yeah. Can you describe your relationship with him and how that came to be? Well, that came to be through a play called The House in Town, which I still think, which my mother still thinks was one of the best things I've ever done. It's a great play. It wasn't like that well received. Um, but I had an incredible experience with Jack Hughes directed it, and and it was um, and it was at Lincoln Center, uh, I think probably ten years ago. So, and I met Richard, um, Rich doing that play, and and that was on the that that, that was um, on the eve of a very dear friend of both of ours, a dying of cancer at that time. Uh, our dear friend Eileen Getz, who died of cancer right right then, right when we started. Um, and um, and so we had this kind of heartbreaking thing that was happening and, and connected us, but um, but we wound up just doing this play together, and it was sort of medicinal and, and, and lovely. And then we stayed in 
good touch, but I, I also think it's that he writes, you know, he writes language in a way that's really interesting to both of us. Mm. And so several parties, I had no idea he was, you know, that's the thing I always love to remind pe actors of and remind myself of is you never know what somebody is creating that you might film. Yeah. And then he, all those days when you're like, oh, nothing good is happening. Nothing's like happening. Nothing's happening. I don't have anything I feel good about. You never know. What's happening yeah, backstage yeah, or yeah, somewhere. Yeah. So that was an incredible experience. And Lynn uh, was just, Lynn Meadow, the director, was just um, so right for that. Mm. And, and, and Judith, it was just everybody. And, and, and Jeremy, Shamos, we just all had this family that that really worked. I, I, I don't know how else to say it. So, and the scope of that story was so profound. Mm take someone's life and sort of... I was so it. interested in, in that play. Oh, I loved it. I, I saw it on the eve of my college graduation. Oh, oh. I got a ticket and I went in and everybody was like, oh, we're going to go to this party. And I was like, no, I think I need to go to the assembled parties. Uh, and that's sort of how I discovered it. But um, we've talked about this too, but I've, I've always sort of identified with his his plays. He writes about, you know, Long Island with such specificity. Yeah, and that's oh, sort I of my upgrowing yeah. in the Babylon line. And, yeah. and, you know, I ride that when I'm with my parents in Merrick, where I grew up. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and there's so many references. You know, Judith Light's character was referencing, like, um, well, I'm from Great Neck, you know, and we're going to Roslyn, the Roosevelt Fields Mall, and things. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's so interesting to see yeah. yourself reflect on stage. And before we move on, I just wanted to point out the hilarity of, of Judith Light's character turning to you. Do you remember and saying it's not a Tevia Goldie thing? Yes, 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 yes. That's Little right. did you both know <laughs> you would be the next Goldie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Really yeah, amazing. Yeah, that's very funny. <laughs> um, we're going a little out of order, but yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't care. Okay. But um, a few months ago, I was working on a new play in Washington, uh, D.C., and I found that I was very stumped sometimes in the rehearsal room. And my idea of who the character was was maybe not fully in line with what the director and playwright had envisioned, or I hadn't allowed my version of the character evolve from my audition initially. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And I had a hard time letting go in the rehearsal room, and I feel like I couldn't set myself or the role free sometimes. It finally clicked in previews, and then once performances clicked in, but I was nervous. Yeah. <clears throat> and I'm wondering if you could describe how you transitioned out of Brighton Beach Memoirs and into A View from the Bridge. Oh, yeah. That's a really good question, because I had a lot of trouble with View from the Bridge, because I hadn't had time to prepare and I just come right out of Brighton Beach, which closed very early. Um, and doing Neil's work was so uh, profound for me. I love his plays. Um, and and a view from the bridge was a very tense rehearsal process. Um, Greg Mosher very, very wisely at one point we were having trouble with the moment, and he said, "You're still, you're still um, dealing with." the character you played in Brighton Beach, um, inhabiting your creative body. And both of those characters, there was a similarity, the Brighton Beach character. I mean, the, the View from the Bridge character was like really, obviously, Red Hook, Italian, mm. but, and, the, and the character from Brighton Beach was Jewish and really had been very vulnerable because of a lot of sad things that had happened and was, you know, but um, the Red Hook character needed to be obviously much more, um, much tougher. And he said, you know, your heart is still in that place of Brighton Beach and it, it will, it will let go, but that's, that's what I'm seeing at this moment. You're, you're caught between two characters. Mm -hmm. 
And, um, and that is, then I realized, it is true. Unless you can practice this exorcism of one right. and this embracing of the other, you, you sometimes do live between two characters for a little while. Were you feeling that? As he was noticing it, or was it something that oh. caught you by surprise? Oh, it was a very articulate way to describe an extremely harrowing rehearsal period where everybody had their own process and we weren't all on the same page. Ultimately, the effect of doing the play was thrilling, and it was thrilling to do it with Liam, and it was thrilling of all that, but the process of it was not in any way um, uh, nurturing. And so I was feeling at odds, and I think in some ways he was just trying. Also, there's a go-to place when you're not when you're vulnerable. You, you're, my go-to place is to be um, soft, you know, is to be sensitive because you're trying to receive things and not trying to cut them off. And it, it's hard for people to act with you sometimes if you're too sensitive because they have nothing to bounce off. Of. Yeah. Um. So, but but we all have a process of figuring it out, and you know, yeah. It comes so, out. Yeah. Well, more on view in a second, but in the, first in the Miller canon, for you came after the fall. Right, 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 right. And in her book, Stella Adler sort of describes the play as nearly an impossible feat for the yeah. two actors that inhabit the lead roles. What was your favorite part about tackling that rarely done play? Oh, well, being with Arthur. That was the last play he was around for, so that was amazing. And he I was, think he, he had passed away the next year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was so... Um, he was so straightforward in his direction of it when, he, when, we, when we got feedback from him. Um, I, I feel sad that I, I, I have lost this piece of paper that um, Michael Mayer so brilliantly uh, took all of Arthur's notes after wow. and, um, and, and he and, um, tore, tore the page up and framed a note for each of us from Arthur. Yeah, uh, so good. Um, but Arthur was really as I always say, very meat and potatoes about how he talked to the actors, and it was always something very doable, and I was profoundly affected by that. And it is, you know, and it's not far from what you think it is. So if you think, wow, and she's waiting for her husband, and he didn't come home, and he made the dinner, and you're really waiting a long time, and he never, you know, he's like never home anymore. And then he walks in. So, so you were like, you know, you can concoct a gazillion things, and it's not much more than that. And it's so, so fascinating that he, you know, his life after Death of a Salesman became so extravagant in terms yeah. of like the relationship with Marilyn Monroe and this and that. Yeah. So his his head, I think he describes in the in the documentary that his daughter, uh, Rebecca, Rebecca created, yeah. where he sort of said, you know, he felt like this invincible sort of like yeah. hero of yeah. the American theater. Yeah. And it's so interesting that his plays never sort of got that carried away and it became about just those specific human interactions. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's yeah. so, it's so Isn't incredible. incredible, incredible. Um, and that also is a testament to the fact that it's not that, so you, you don't need to go through these mental, you know, um, circus tricks to figure it out. If you just think simply about how these people are existing, it's probably what you think it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was wondering, uh, of course it always changes, but if you had to have something constant on the first day of rehearsal, mm -hmm. and more specifically for the price, since that was a shorter rehearsal process, mm. um, what did you feel that you walked in armed with? Oh, well, well that was beautiful because um, Danny, DeVito, and Mark and Tony and I um, read it a bunch in my house like a few days before we started. That's amazing. We came over and we just read several. 
times, but um, what I need the first day is my script with my notes because my preparation is that I read it almost every day if I can in the in the like three to four weeks before we start it. Mm -hmm. I just read it, try to read it once a day or read a section of it once a day and notate the script as much as possible. So that the first day we go in, I have a script that is a bit scored, mm -hmm. you know, that has like just notes and it may change radically, but it is almost like there's a music to it sure. that I need to read out at the beginning just to get that out. Yeah. yeah. And if I don't have that, it's really scary. I, I just feel like you're falling without. Right. I mean, even though I've read it many times, and I'm the one that made the notes, it's just like I have to see on the page. It's your comfort. It's your my yes, my my imprint that I've started to make. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of like musicality, I'm wondering. There was a gorgeous score composed for the price. Mm. I don't know how to say his name properly. Jesse Tavish. I think Tavish. Yeah. Um, and I was thrilled to find that the score was available on his website oh. and you can purchase it and you can listen to it and as yeah. I was rereading the script to prepare for this um, I put it on and yeah. you know some of the titles correspond with moments that were happening in the play yeah. and I find that um, you know as a musical person I find that that really enhances like a deeper even when I'm working on plays music in general um, helps me sink into things and I'm wondering uh, do you find that that's helpful for you are you listening to it sometimes during a play or yeah um I've recently become more interested in music as something that feeds me in mm -hmm. terms of, but n no, I I need to hear the what what usually feeds me is the way people sound in the play. Now sometimes I will listen sure. to um, just YouTube recordings of people that I think sound like the characters. Sure. Um, uh, but I I don't. Yeah, I, I wish I. The only, there have been a couple of plays where the music that I realized was actually, I should say, this has all come in recent years. The music that like Rebecca Tashman has mm. chosen for the Sarah Rule plays I did with her has fed me enormously. And then I did a play called Legacy at, at, at um, Williamstown. Mm -hmm. And this Haydn Surprise Symphony was in it, and it was a revelation for that play that mm. made us understand. So, yes, it, if we. The way Rebecca works, you start to hear the music, and it is so. I mean, speaking of indecent, just sort of like the music, oh, the play, the way that that's supported. She's superb director. She's so, really, yeah. But yeah. I, I only ask that because you know the the play that I was doing in Washington a few months ago. There was a moment that I couldn't really sink my teeth into, and we would do it, and we would do it, and we would do it, and then the the um, the composer and the sound designer came in, and all of a sudden in tech we heard the, the, the underscoring that was going to happen, that, mm -hmm. feed that mm -hmm. fed that moment. And all this emotion welled up in me, just like the timbre of like the strings or like the yeah. low bass of the piano, something in me welled up and I was able to connect to it in a deeper way. And I just find that so interesting that even yeah. in a play, sometimes music can, I don't know. Can affect you in that yeah. way, absolutely. I, I, since doing filler, I've actually been more and more affected by music as a voice in the play mm. it's funny um, yeah 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 well um there's a moment also you know that in rehearsal scared me a lot and I find that in a lot of plays there may be one or two points that I have to kind of like rev myself right, up to do right, and yeah. I'm wondering if you also experience that and if there's anything you do to sort of counteract that and you mean an emotional moment that you can't quite figure out or it's either emotional or it's something Sometimes I, I get into a fear of um, 
I hope I don't, this is a long passage of text, I hope I don't drop a line that catapults the rest of the scene in another direction. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That I usually, well, there's always a section of the play that you like the least. Yes. It's always the yes. least favorite scene. Mm-hmm. It's the least favorite scene, the least favorite moment. Yes. And then there's a favorite moment, of course. But the least favorite moments, I try to figure out a little something delicious I can do. Like some physical thing or some something I look forward to. Both on stage room. and off? Yeah, well, off I'm a little bit of a trickster. I'm not, mm. like, if I have a really serious scene coming up, I get totally focused. But off stage, I, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. Off stage, I like to stay really loose. And yeah. The only time that I haven't been completely loose off stage is um, during, um, during uh, Julius Caesar that I did mm. with Denzel. It was such a serious environment I bet. that I didn't. That I just stayed in this kind of dark zone, no which world. is fine. Sure. Um, but I. But yeah, in a scene that I can't bear to do, I um, I do try to trick it up off stage and on. Sure. Yeah. 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 And then you get so excited for it, and it just releases it. I hope I look forward to doing that in the future. <laughs> um, we just have like two questions left, sure. but um. What are some of Jessica's weird actor traits? Are you um, muttering on the subway your lines? Are you journaling as the character? What do you have anything that you would classify as like weird? My own like kind of weirdness. Yeah. Um, well, I guess my um, I don't I don't have any really oddball things. <laughs> <laughs> I actually like to think of it in a really practical way like I'm there to tell the story and um, I don't I like to think of it as like a a workman's job you know like all the things that I need to do I I do really um, yeah I don't I I wish I had like a superstition or any of that none of that exists for you not superstitious. Ah. I like. I really love candy before I do my show. Like penny candy, sure. <laughs> like fireballs or dots oh. or something like that. I like. Yeah, like a second candy or something. Yes, I love that you call it a second candy. That's what I call it. But any kind of childhood candy. Candy. Yeah, yeah. It's I love that. Really, my, important for me. I always the Ricolas or whatever the cough drops that are backstage. I like constantly yeah. need something to just keep it, I don't know. Yeah, loose. but I like really need penny candy, like oh. old fashioned. It yeah. can't just be like, like a, a sticker, like a candy sticker, like something. Yeah, something like you would have bought in nineteen nineteen twenty five. Uh at the candy store. Like I know what to get you for the next play. You you absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and my last question for you in this lovely bathroom yeah. to end is I would love if you could mm-hmm. And with a love note to the American theater, uh, what makes you keep coming back and why it continues to ignite your soul? Oh, that's beautiful. Well, I haven't done a play now in a few months, and I am pained by that. I am as well. (laughs) It took a little time to be at home, and I was like, I miss you on stage very much. (laughs) I wish that I um, had something else. My love letter is that um, I wish there was something else that made me feel as fulfilled as a human being and there's um, there's something very valuable about being with your family or making money or any of the things that you're not afforded when you, <laughs> you do a slightly American thing nope. but the experience of just 
being in a dark room every night with a lot of people you don't know and being someone else for them is um, is such a gift and I and I don't know that I will ever underestimate it again mm. after this particular moment in time in history when we're all so fraught the idea that we could play somebody um, and it, of course that's a good play that I want yeah. I mean if it's a bad play you, you feel like oh I'm not doing anything I should be out celebrating doing turkey. something else but, but when it's good turkey to the homeless or something right. even if it's not Thanksgiving but, but there is something noble in, in the yeah. profession oh there's something so noble well, you are the epitome of that. <laughs> You're so sweet. And it's I thank such you a pleasure. From so live much. from my bathroom. Live from Jessica's bathroom. Uh, here we are signing out. So thank you very thank much. You. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm.